Hi, everyone. Welcome back to FT Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is the cramming edition, where we try to talk about way too many topics, more than should conceivably be attempted in a 45-minute podcast. But it's such a roster of interesting things to discuss that we can't wait to do it. First up, we're going to do a Q&A segment where we listen to a couple of recent listener calls and talk about them and try to address what it is they're worried about and answer their questions. Then a former investment banking analyst from the year 2000 happens to be a colleague of ours, Sujit Indap. He's a writer for Lex now, but he went back and he tried to figure out what all of his former colleagues from that analyst class at Merrill Lynch are doing now. And it was a really fascinating investigation. And he wrote about it for FT Alphaville this week. Then after that, we're going to be talking about the Puerto Rican economy, the Puerto Rican default of earlier this week, and how it got into this mess and how, if at all, Puerto Rico can get out of it. And then last up, the Canadian economy. I promise this is interesting. The electoral season has just kicked off there, and we're going to talk about that with Matthew C. Klein, my colleague from Alphaville, and Anna Nicolau, a reporter for the Financial Times. Lots to get to here today. Stick around. As it happens, Matt Klein is actually going to be joining us the whole time. Matt, you had such a good time being on the podcast last week. You just had to return, didn't you? I did. Okay. It's not just that. Very I, excited. Yeah, I actually need your help <laughs> with these questions. Millennials, you happen to be one. And yes. you're, you're, you're the job hopping kind, too. This is sort of, a, I think, a, this is a myth about millennials that they job hop more than previous generations. But in your case, it's true. Yeah, although I'm not sure it necessarily is more than previous generations, but... No, it's not more than previous generations. Right. That's the myth, that, right. that it is more. The People job hop a lot when they're younger. That's yeah, right. but you actually, you yourself have job hopped that's a true. lot. All right, we're trying to keep you at the FT for as long as possible. That's right. All right, um, but your history suggests that you'll be gone pretty soon. Hopefully not, but... Which means we can treat you shabbily. Anyways, um, okay, you ready to listen to some calls? Absolutely. All right, here's the first one from Stuart. I would greatly appreciate if you all could... Uh, expand a bit more on the changing labor market, especially what that might mean for millennials, and more importantly, not so much the downsides from the previous uh, generations that we've seen, but where the opportunities are for uh, those that are going to carry the torch forward. My name is Stuart Schroff. I reside in New York City. Thank you. Bye-bye. So the first thing to say is that this is a tough question to answer if the definition of millennial is as broad as it usually is, which is to say about 18 to 34 years old. There's a lot of variability within that age group. So if you're an 18-year-old trying to figure out what your college major is going to be, that's one thing. If you're 26 and you're trying to decide between a new job offer or grad school, that's another. And then, of course, if you're 32 or 34 years old and you're thinking about starting a family and you've been entrenched in a career for some time, that's a different situation altogether. Stuart sent a follow-up email later on sort of clarifying what he meant. He seems mostly interested in that block of people just after college, maybe the first five or six years after college. Matt, um, you are just a couple of years removed from that. I am very far removed from that age category. But let's talk about it. So he wanted some clarification on technology and how that's affecting the job market. So we have to distinguish between a couple of different things he might mean. So on the one hand, there's the technology industry itself, right? And jobs at places like Google or at a startup or at Apple or Facebook or whatever. And then there's the sort of rise of the gig economy. That could be something 
different altogether, which is to say other kinds of jobs, not necessarily in tech, but that have been affected by tech, these kind of online talent platforms. So let's take the first one, jobs in technology. It seems, Matt, like right now technology is for young people starting to occupy a certain position of status that maybe was once enjoyed by finance, by the banks and by hedge funds and private equity firms and things like that. Do you get that sense before I even get to some numbers? Is that is that an impression that you've had over the last few years during which you've had friends in these various kinds of work? So I've certainly read that argument a lot, and I can understand the appeal, particularly because the typical day-to-day lifestyle of someone who works in tech is much more pleasant than the typical day-to-day lifestyle of someone who works in banking. I mean, you're not sitting at your desk for 18 to 20 hours. People treat you decently. You can wear uh, casual clothes. They give you free food. These things definitely an appeal. There's probably some appeal also. I think it's fading, but definitely in sort of the 2008-2010 period, people were very upset with bankers because of the presumption that they were directly responsible for the financial crisis and unemployment and all that. that. I think that's faded somewhat, but that obviously also increased the appeal of tech where you have a company like Google where they say, don't be evil is their slogan. So you, know, you can feel good about yourself. Whether that's true or not is a different question, but yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's some so, psychic benefit. So let me, let me cite a couple of things. One is that there was an article this week about Harvard MBAs and how more of them are, in fact, going to work for tech companies rather than for banks. doesn't mean that finance hiring is dead in the water. Of course not. It still pays quite lucratively, um, and it's still going to be appealing for a lot of people, especially if they adjust uh, in response to more and more educated people demanding a better lifestyle as opposed to higher pay. Uh, I have some reason to be, you know, to, to doubt that as the economy gets better, that that'll, that that'll last, but who knows? Secondly, though, it, it's true that a lot of people start, have started seeing things like Google, Facebook, other companies of that nature as just big sources of employment, as places that can absorb a lot of people. They themselves have grown. Maybe it's a bubble, maybe not, but they are increasingly popular. There's a survey by Universum on most attractive employers, and it has Google at the top of the list, but it also includes a couple of other tech companies in addition to finance and law and accounting which used to occupy, I think, all of the top 10 or most of the top 10. And I would recommend to Stuart that he read some work by Michael Mendel, something that he wrote called San Francisco and the Tech Boom, which is all about this very topic. But I want to hurry along and get to the second part because I think it's actually more interesting. The possibility that the gig economy is going to kind of upend the way we work and the more traditional notion of a stable job that lasts for a very long time provides benefits, it provides uh, the ability to have a middle-class lifestyle and a family and all that. There's an extent to which that seems to be dead, and there's certainly a lot of hype around the rise of the gig economy, these online talent platforms. This is how McKinsey describes the gig economy as contingent work that is transacted on a digital marketplace. They estimate that it's going to add about $2.7 trillion to GDP by 2025, or about 2%. So it's substantial. Now, It just so happens, Matt, that right now the FT is running a long series on young people and the extent to which they're going to be affected, their lives are going to be affected by the gig economy. They're focused on Europe. I know a little bit more about the U.S. situation. But in Europe, okay, it seems like part-time work and freelance work is a much more – I don't want to say popular because it's not necessarily well-liked. But it's much more common over there. It's a much higher share of overall work than it is here. But Among young people. Among young people, yes. But there's a flip side to this, isn't there? 
Right. I mean, the poster child in, in the FT series, which I highly recommend you all read, is Spain, where I think it's something on the order of 70% of young people are on part-time contracts. Spain also happens to be a country, perhaps not coincidentally, where the overall unemployment rate is something on the order of 23%. Yeah. And for young people, uh, it's like 50%. So... Uh, this And this is not the kind of relationship you find in, say, France, which is relatively better, where the, the share of people working in part-time work is lower, and the U.S. is lower still. So it's, it's somewhat suggestive that rather than the rise of technology, this is just a reflection of a weak economy. Right. And in the U.S., where, by the way, the unemployment rate is now 5.3%, I think that's you know, less than half of what it is uh, in Europe overall. That's right. It doesn't quite show up as much in the numbers, but there's a chance that the numbers undercount the number of people who are gravitating towards these platforms. It should be said, by the way, that this does represent opportunity in some sense, that for some people, as our colleague John Gapper wrote this week, for some people this is a good thing. This represents a source of freedom. But it seems to me like it's more likely that this is a reflection of just a weak economic environment, that we've had kind of plodding growth since the end of the recession, that although these New platforms do increase productivity. They are a source of disruption, as they're usually called. The fact that they're popular, the fact that there's a lot of hype around them might also just reflect the fact that they're more fun to write about. You know, They're fun for journalists to write right. about. And by the way, an industry that might also move in that direction eventually is journalism. So we look at this and we talk about it as if it's this grand new thing. It's not really there yet. Right. And also, I think it's worth pointing out, people talk about the freedom. Yes, you can. there's some latitude to pick your own hours. For example, if you're an Uber driver, you can choose when you log into the platform. But there's not the freedom in the sense of, well, if you have a certain set of monthly expenses that are more or less fixed, you still need to have to work long enough to, to meet your obligations. So, I mean, in that sense, real freedom would be just having enough money not to have to work at all. So it's, it's the idea that it's necessarily making your life better, especially when it doesn't necessarily come with benefits. I think it really depends on the situation. Sure. Although if we talk about policy, and we got into this a little bit in a recent podcast about the end of men, if we're talking about policy responses, right, it's still kind of an open question as to whether the best response is to try to interfere with the workings of the market and with the rise of these platforms, or if it's to make sure that the people who engage in the gig economy and who do it have a big enough safety net, like everybody else. In other words, if we try to enact a society-wide solution, right? If we try to make sure that unemployment benefits are generous enough, or if we move in the direction of a universal basic income or whatever, that it's a society-wide solution and that that'll allow people who work in the gig economy, in some cases, not by choice, in some cases, because they were forced into it, because the kind of stable jobs that used to exist are in decline, that they have a fallback and that it allows them to take a little bit more right. risk. I mean, there's an interesting argument I've heard. It's sort of hard to say how much this is true, but that the timing of the passage of Obamacare and by making it relatively easier for people who don't have employer-provided health insurance to get health insurance does seem to coincide with the rise of these freelance-based economies. And it sort of makes sense that you know if you have a sort of anachronistic system where you have to be tied to a particular employer to get health care or to get pension, then it makes a lot more sense that if that, that is distributed more broadly by the state, then you, don't, then you have more flexibility to strike out on your own. Okay. That's the gig economy. I want to talk about some macro trends here, okay, while we're still on the subject of young people and how they're faring. So in the immediate aftermath of the recession, young people were brutalized, essentially, right? Their economic prospects were brutalized. Now, this isn't something necessarily to be surprised at. This would have happened in any generation, right? This would have happened 20 or 30 years ago if we'd had a recession of the severity that we just had, 
young people would have gotten harmed the most back then too. This is just a reflection of natural factors. Young people have less training. They have fewer contacts. They are less employable. But it also affected well-trained young people, college grads, who ended up taking a lot of jobs that they were frankly overqualified for because the better jobs simply didn't exist. Now, the New York Fed says that this might be slowly getting better, that in the last few years, some of those better, higher-paying jobs have opened up. But it's also likely that young people have taken a hit that's damaged some of their you know, income prospects permanently. A lot of studies show this. It's terrible. But at least things are getting better. There's a sliver of hope. That's right. Uh, you know, you're pointing about 30 years ago. In the early 80s, there was a pretty severe recession then as well. And, and so there were some studies done, and they say that the, the lasting impact of graduating or simply entering the workforce during a recession can hit your income for like 10, 15 years. This is a significant uh, long-term negative shock. And as someone who graduated in, in 2009, I'm acutely aware of it. But in terms of college graduates taking jobs that don't necessarily require a college degree, it definitely got a lot worse during the uh, most recent recession. But the New York Fed paper you're talking about, they, they, it's a sort of a secular trend that began arguably with the 2000 recession and is beginning steadily worse since then. And I think it's possible we can tie this to sort of broader changes of the way technology and globalization have been hollowing out uh, middle-class job opportunities. And so you have plenty of jobs available in, say, retail, sales, or food service, where those are rapidly growing sectors and rising shared workforce, but much less in sort of middle office kinds of jobs that people used to do that now either can be outsourced. Yeah, I would note, especially in health and education. That's right. right which is grow. I mean, employment in those sectors has continued growing almost unimpeded That's right. since the recession. Although those require usually even more advanced degrees than just college, which can also explain partly why people but are I, having... But I don't think they pay very much. That's also true. Yeah. Right. Okay. Here's a fun fact, by the way. The population of adults aged 18 to 34 has actually climbed by 3 million since 2007. And it is now the age category with the highest share of employment in the U.S. Echo boom. Yeah, exactly. Okay, moving on. Thanks, Stuart, for your question. We hope that helped. We'll put up a lot of links on Alphaville uh, where you can see more about this topic, and which we relied on in answering your question. Uh, next question. Yo, Cardiff, uh, for Alpha Chat, uh, Mystic from Over the Peak here. I have an idea for a segment on Alpha Chat for you. That is to discuss the seeming anomaly between two statements. Those statements being that banks make loans from fresh air. And the second statement, banks use deposits to fund loans. Now, I think both of these statements are correct. But I think it's the second one, banks use deposits to fund loans, that needs a bit of a wording change. But it would be interesting to have somebody discuss it. Thanks, bye. Uh, thanks, Mystic, for your question. Matt, this is a favored topic in the economics blogosphere, the idea that banks create loans and that sort of common understandings, older understandings of how the monetary system works are really quite outdated. They're obsolete, if anything. So his mystic raises the issue of banks make loans with deposits and how that seems anomalous to the first statement, which is the correct one, which is that banks make loans essentially out of thin air and that they create deposits when they make loans. But we need to take a step back and sort of explain exactly how this works. Sure. I think one way of doing this is sort of by an analogy. Like let's say you have a credit card and you go to a store and you buy something. 
And what actually happens in that moment is you are buying something without actually having the money to do it. You've created a liability out of thin air. That liability is the credit card balance. That credit card balance has been securitized somewhere, whatever. But the actual act of buying the thing occurs first, and then the debt occurs later. Now, deposits are just bank debt. And there are a lot of things that are like deposits that we can also sort of functionally say are debt of other financial firms, whether it's commercial paper issued by banks, whatever. Okay, stop, market. stop for a second because you, you're starting to get you're starting to get into like some fancy terminology here. Okay. Right? Let's take the very basic understanding of how the monetary system works and, and then explain why it's wrong. So the common understanding in the public, not necessarily amongst economists, of course, but the public, is that I give my money to a bank. All right, I put it there to save. The bank then has that money that it can use to lend out to other people, and then it keeps the difference, right? That's not actually how it works. The way it works is that the bank, right, and we're talking mainly about commercial banks here, right, the the ones that transact in a lot of money. So a bank makes a loan to a company, and when it makes that loan, it credits that company with deposits, right? That's the loan. That's the cash. So that the bank now has an asset of being owed money later, and it has a liability of the deposits that it now has given or loaned to that company. That's right. And the company can then, well, presumably will spend those deposits somewhere else. Those deposits will go to some other entity elsewhere in the economy, but they can't actually leave the system. They have to end up somewhere. They have not disappeared. That's new money. Right. They they are created ex nihilo, and banks do this all the time. And you as an individual can do this too. You take a credit card, you swipe it, uh, you've been able to buy something without having the money up front. It's the same principle. A bank can say, oh, this looks like something I want to own, a, a loan that doesn't exist yet to a company because I think it's profitable. I'm going to make the loan, and then I'll just create the money on the side deposit. Uh, they can gross up, and, and they can grow and shrink their balance sheet at will. That's what changes uh, the supply of money. Now let's talk about the role of the central bank here. It is sort of sometimes thought that the central bank targets the amount of reserves in the system and that what the banks do with those reserves end up setting the interest rate. That's actually not how it works. The central bank targets the interest rate, which decides or helps determine whether or not it's profitable for the bank to make a loan. Essentially, it has another option, right? Rather than getting paid a certain amount of interest on its reserves held with the central bank, the bank makes a loan instead. So to be clear, reserves are a regulatory requirement. Banks have to hold a certain proportion of their assets on deposit at the central bank, and they can use these to pay each other. Right. What's interesting is that there are some countries, advanced economies, that don't have reserve requirements the way we do, say, in the United States, and it works fine. So in the U.S., the Fed targets, or at least they used to, you know, now we're in the world of ZERPs, so a little different, but before they targeted the interest rate at which banks would lend these reserves to each other. Other countries that didn't have these requirements, they just targeted something else. They had a repo rate, for example, right. and it worked fine. So the, uh, you know, there's a, among a certain group of people, there's a real obsession about the importance of reserves, and it, that's unwarranted. They're not essential to the, the conduct of monetary policy as such. But I think the point you make about interest rates is really important because you know, we use the phrase monetary policy or monetary policymakers. They don't actually control money in the normal sense of things. Right. What they do is they try to influence the actors that actually create money, which are private financial firms. Privately in, run. Privately right. right. They are profit-seeking entities that make decisions based on whether they think they will make money for themselves. And the central bank can nudge at the margin some of the – the factors that private bankers look at to determine whether or not to make loans and increase the money supply, but they don't actually control the money supply, which is part of the reason why things can sometimes get out of hand in terms of the creation of credit, 
either too much or too little. Right. You can find situations where central banks wishing that private banks would lend more, and they don't, or when they wish that they could constrain certain kinds of lending, and they don't, because at the end of the day, interest rates are important, but if you're a borrower that wants to borrow, for example, the interest rate generally isn't the main constraint that you face. If you're a home buyer, the New York Fed recently did some surveys of this. If you face a mortgage rate of 4% versus 6%, you don't really care. If you want to buy the house, you buy the house. The constraint is your income and your down payment, by and large. If you're a corporate borrower, people have done studies on this too. Corporate investment is basically unrelated to corporate borrowing costs. It's much more related to equity prices and the signal that equity prices send on whether they should be making new investments. Okay. So the key takeaway here, I think, is that bank loans and therefore money creation is determined more by economic opportunity. In other words, whether it's a profitable opportunity for the banks and whether or not there's demand for the loans by companies who think that they, they're in an environment where they can make money. If they borrow money now, they invest it in their businesses, and then later on they'll be able to pay it back because they'll be so wildly profitable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. That's right. Stop there for a second. One last topic here. The role of quantitative easing. Now, this this is we, we don't have time to get too much into this, and we've got a recommendation for a paper that our listeners really should check out. But very quickly, okay, when the central bank buys debt, right, as part of quantitative easing, buys government debt, what ends up happening is that the central bank now owns that debt. Obviously, that's on its asset side of its balance sheet. And then on the liability side of its balance sheet is excess reserves that the banks who sold the central bank, the debt, now have, right? In other words, the banks now have reserves with the central bank, right? Now, there's this kind of myth that what ends up happening is that those reserves should be lent out, and therefore the central bank shouldn't pay interest on those reserves or something like that. That's not how it works. Those extra reserves don't get lent out. When banks make loans, what happens is that those extra reserves get recategorized okay, as required reserves instead of excess reserves. And in some very, very small fraction of cases, okay, they can get recategorized as actual currency if the bank right. needs to pay out its, right. you know, its depositors or something like that. But the overall amount of what's called the monetary base, which is what the central bank can control, okay – is not the same as the actual money supply, which is entirely determined by the activity of privately run banks and other financial institutions. Yes, that's completely right. And I think it's worth pointing out that central bankers themselves know this. They've said explicitly in speeches, if you read it, that when they go out and they buy bonds for the sake of easing financial conditions, their target is to lower the interest rates on the bonds that they buy not they don't care about the specific you know quantity of reserves that are created because it's essentially an irrelevant constraint. Right. Okay. We've got to move on. We could talk about this forever, but I want to leave our listeners with a recommendation. There is a short paper from early last year called Money Creation in the Modern Economy. It goes through all of this in a span of just eight or ten pages. It's very much worth the read and it's a very useful introduction for the beginner, a primer, if you will, to understanding this topic. We'll put a link up to it on Alphaville. We recommend it. Go check it out. But we've got to move on. Next up on the show, Sujit Indap, writer for the Lex column. Sujit, welcome. You've dated yourself in your recent piece for FT Alphaville, haven't uh, you? Yes, I did out myself as being the Generation X approaching 
my mid thirties. Yes, actually past my mid thirties. Yes, nice try. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> but specifically, you were in the analyst class of two thousand at Merrill Lynch, and yes. you investigated what your former colleagues. How many of them were there? Uh, I counted one hundred and sixty-six, uh, just uh, of the American university graduates in our class. So there was foreign students, there was people in capital markets. So this was the U.S. base of the investment banking division. So N equals one hundred and thirty-eight. Sample size one hundred. Uh, I started with N equals one sixty-six yeah. in the book, and N equals one thirty-eight for the people I could track down through Google or okay. LinkedIn. But you investigated what they're doing now in their lives, what right. the outcome of their lives were fifteen years later. Yeah, and so the impetus for this was. This sense that too many kids go into finance, this is socially problematic, and that's a normative question. What I wanted to investigate was the more practical question, do kids who start in finance actually stay in finance? Because as you guys know very well, people change careers quite a bit. What you do when you're 22 or 23 is very different than where you end up at 33, 43, yeah. 53. Yeah, what you mean by just then was that all three of us actually started in finance. Matt? You and I all started in finance, and we all ended up here. And look how that turned out. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's not take it too much <laughs> into that. Okay, so you did this, and what did what, what, you find? So if we just take a step back and talk about what was going on in 2000, it was the height of the dot-com boom. Every day in the newspaper, there was some big IPO, some big merger, and if you wanted to get uh, into that world, it, it was a great time, even if you were just curious. So. Great time to come out. Great time to to be looking for a job and great time to graduate. Yeah. So, fifteen years later, uh, what was most interesting is that there are still a lot of people in broadly financial services. How you break that down into financial services is a little more interesting. Only about uh, say a third of the people who are still in finance uh, are in classical investment banking, working in a sell side firm like a Goldman Sachs or a Citigroup. Or wait, wait, wait a minute. How many of the overall are still in finance? So. Comes out to about uh, sixty to sixty-five percent were in broadly financial services. Okay, within that group, say a third were in what you would call investment banking, working at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or a Citigroup. What was most interesting was that the majority, the two-thirds of that group, who are still in finance, are on "quote unquote" the buy side, and so what they had transitioned to were, were investing jobs. They were either working at hedge funds or mutual funds or in private equity, and so. Really what had happened was this training class had really served as a, a pool for these buy-side firms to, to get their talent. A lot of them ended up going to grad school as well, right? Uh, yeah, about half uh, went to grad school, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, as you can imagine, the modal outcome for that was business school. And of uh, the business schools people went to, they were all virtually all top schools. So having that imprimatur of uh, an analyst program proved pretty pretty helpful. In, and in and the reasons for their having gone uh, to the buy side, to private equity and hedge funds, I'm just assuming, call it a wild guess, that it's because it pays a lot better. You know, I think part of it's the money, but there is this herd mentality that everything is better on the buy side. The work is more interesting because you have money to invest and you're really doing more analytical work. You're really thinking about companies either to buy their stocks or bonds in or actually buy them as a private equity investor. A big part of investment banking is marketing and trying to win new business. So a thought is you avoid all that on the buy side. Uh, the lifestyle is theoretically better because you don't have these clients calling you up on Sunday morning saying we need something by Monday. That's uh, not theoretically better. It's better. Every job has its, uh, <laughs> has its clients. Uh, I don't think any of these jobs are as, as easy as they may be advertised to be. But the pitch is you, know, you, you work hard for two years as an analyst, and there's this pot of gold on the, on the buy side waiting for you. That in the data seems to have borne itself out. So before you saw the light and came to work at the Financial Times – 
you were yourself in investment banking for how many years? Six or seven. So I was, I'm a very rare case. I was an analyst for two years. Uh, I actually worked in a nonprofit organization before I went back to business school. And then after business school, I actually went back to investment banking, uh, which is very rare. Most people who go into investment banking after business school are career switchers. Uh, as my data shows, nearly everyone went to the buy side. I did not do that. I actually happened to like certain parts of investment banking and, and consciously made the choice to go back, uh, which is a relatively rare outcome. Okay. And of the third that are now doing something totally different or totally outside of finance, mm-hmm. what would you find? Well, a lot of them actually aren't totally out of finance. If you saw the story in Alphaville, I broke it up between industry and then function. So functionally, a lot of people are still broadly in finance. Maybe but six, not for finance companies. Not for finance companies. So some are working at fashion companies, whether it's Neiman Marcus or Coach or companies like that. Some people have become entrepreneurs. I talked about one guy who founded Sushi Rito, which is a hot kind of fast casual restaurant in the San Francisco Financial District. One person is a math teacher. Some people went to their family businesses. So even if most people are broadly in kind of financial services, there were not an insignificant number of people doing relatively diverse and interesting things. Yeah, and there was a fascinating gender split in the outcomes of your analyst class. Talk about that. Yeah, so if you look on day zero when we showed up, about 65% were men, and the rest obviously were women, uh, which... There aren't many other options. (laughs) Well, what's interesting is that split... probably becomes less and less diverse as you move up the food chain banking. So two to one probably was as diverse a cohort as there was at Farrell. So it only became less diverse after, after Well, the what first happened was that I looked at where people were today, and if we look at those hardcore finance jobs, private equity, hedge funds, uh, investment banking, I think real estate, most of those had uh, a proportion of women of 25% or less. And so women definitely were underrepresented relative to their starting point in our class in those professions, and then Logically, they were overrepresented in nonprofit, media, retail. Okay, I, I thought this whole analysis was really quite fascinating. But to answer the first question that we talked about, if you go into finance, do you tend to stay in finance, whether at a financial services firm or in a finance function at a non financial services firm? The answer kind of seems to be yes. And I remember before I went into finance, a lot of people would say to me, well, look, It's only for a few years. You'll get valuable work experience. Plus, you'll make a little more money than you would in some other field. And then you can switch to do something else if you want. Mm -hmm. And I did. But at the same time, in aggregate, it seems like most people don't. And so the idea that, for instance, you should go into finance even if there's something else you want to do with your life because it provides some kind of valuable training, that seems to be like flawed advice, right? It seems like it's possible But you're setting yourself up, you're starting down a certain path, and it won't necessarily be easy to switch from it because I actually find it hard to believe that everybody who went into your analyst class in 2000, or even the most of them, Mm -hmm. thought they would be in finance for most of their lives. And yet, to this point, most of them are. Yeah, that's a good point. So it would be ideal to do a control experiment where you took one cohort who went down this path and another cohort who had the opportunity and said no and then compare where they ended up X years later. I was surprised to see how many people were still on this on this path in finance, whether it was at an investment bank or on the buy side. Um, I think good opportunities presented themselves. 
over the last 15 years, and they and they jumped on those, and so far they've stayed on that treadmill or stayed on their, that path, and it's worked out uh, at least professionally and financially for them. Uh, it'll be interesting to see in five years and 10 years whether they are successful enough or burnt out enough that they get off uh, get off that path like the three of us did. It also means you'll still be at the Financial Times if you're around to do that very <laughs> investigation, which would be at great news for all of us. At least we're having fun. All right. Sujit Indap, it's a great post. Uh, we'll link to it on Alphaville again, but you can go find it now if you want independently. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, next up on the show, Puerto Rico defaulted on some of its debt earlier this week. We're joined by Robin Wigglesworth, the U.S. markets editor of the Financial Times. Robin, your debut on Alpha Chat, and it's to discuss Puerto Rican default. Uh, incredibly exciting. I've been on once before three years ago in one of the, sort of the, the Alpha versions of Alpha Chat. Uh, yes, the, the earlier edition, you were on the Lee Bukheit edition featuring exactly. Lee Bukheit. Also debt restructuring, so... yes. That's Very so cool. you're always on with sovereign debt issues come calling, okay? I know, I can't get it. You show up. Okay, so Puerto Rico defaulted on some of its debt. Why don't we take a step back and first explain to our listeners just how Puerto Rico actually got itself into this mess? Well, like most debt crises, the seeds were sown years and years and years ago. Essentially, Puerto Rico has always benefited from a bit of a tax break. That meant that lots of U.S. manufacturing, especially pharmaceuticals, could base companies there uh, for beneficial tax gain. That was unwound, I think, in 2006. And basically, since then, they've been losing jobs. It's been in recession. And especially since we Puerto Ricans are American citizens, so they can just easily move to the U.S. So, and they have. And they have in droves. So, you know, the population shrinks, the economy shrinks. That means there are less jobs, more people move. So it's just been a downward spiral, and it's basically been in a recession for a decade now. So th- those are the economic problems. In terms of how it initially racked up all of its debt, we should probably get into how uh, Puerto Rican bonds differ a little bit from most kinds of municipal debt in the U.S., this idea that they're triple exempt. Yeah, they're exempt from also federal, state, and city taxes, which means they have a huge advantage when they issue debt. Uh, so what the Puerto Ricans have been doing as the economy is contracted rather than tightening their belt, which, I mean, you can understand why in austerity we've seen that doesn't always work well uh, when the economy is struggling. Uh, they've just borrowed more and more. And when they've hit the limit on certain things like general obligation debt, the core government debt, they've been issuing moral obligation debt or the utilities have been issuing debt or the pension funds have been issuing debt. So you have this debt pile now, which is one of the most wonderfully complex and interesting, messy things I've ever seen in my life. All right, we're going to get into some of those distinctions in a minute, but I, I want to also just get back to this point about how Puerto Rican debt differs from other kinds of municipal yeah. debt. So most municipal debt in the U.S. is obviously exempt from federal taxes, right? But it's only exempt from state and local taxes for people who buy the debt who live in the same municipality, in the same local area where the debt was issued. But Puerto Rican debt was exempt from all these taxes no matter where you lived. So there was an incentive for bond funds and for people who lived in, say, Wyoming to buy Puerto Rican bonds because it provided this very generous subsidy. Yeah. Now, the the municipal bond funds around the states are stuffed to the gills with Puerto Rican debt of some kind because of that advantage that, you know, most other municipal bonds just don't have. That's one of the things that allowed Puerto Rico to borrow just so much before they kind of run out of road. Right. So it was able to borrow all this money during a time when 
the economy was in a decade-long tailspin, roughly. And it used a lot of it to fund a fairly generous welfare state, some of which I think was probably justified because it has... And, and the U.S. pays for some of these things, like unemployment. There are lots of federal benefits the federal government pays for, but yes. Right. So it's, it's racking up all this debt. It's using this complex array of bonds in order to raise the money to pay for it. And not so long ago, the governor of Puerto Rico says that the debt load is sustainable and we start getting close to the point where they're going to default on the debt. Let's talk about what's happened in the last couple of months. Well, so, I mean, they were, it's like every debt crisis, and, you know, government officials always say, we're fine, we're fine, until they suddenly say, oops, no, <laughs> we're not. And uh, amusingly, he revealed that in an interview with the New York Times, and that kind of caught quite a lot of people unawares, including some hedge funds, where even as the governor was giving this interview, was in negotiations with the government about buying another bond to tie the government over for at least maybe another year. So this, was, uh, this came uh, alongside a report that the Puerto Rican government commissioned from Anne Kruger, who used to work at the IMF. She used to be the first deputy di- managing director there. She used to be the chief economist of the World Bank, incredibly respected economist. And a few people working with her came out with this report. And that report was just so gloomy that, frankly, Puerto Rico would have been hard-pressed not to basically bite the bullet at that point. You know, you were mentioning about how the Puerto Rican governor was negotiating with hedge funds. Could you talk a little bit more about how the investor base or Puerto Rican debt has changed over the past couple of years? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, even the municipal bond funds, which can be fairly sleepy and slow, kind of realized that Puerto Rico was in a bit of a pickle, let's say. So they started fleeing. And that left basically just an investor base. And there's still lots of municipal money is still there. Lots of bond funds are huge exposed to Puerto Rico, but the new money was certainly not coming from them. These guys are not used to default situations. I mean, there hasn't been a state default, state default. I mean, Puerto Rico isn't a proper state, but state default for over 100 years, I think, in the US. It's always been smaller municipalities. So the new invest base was hedge funds, and these are typically distressed debt hedge funds that are used to these situations, everything from more corporate types to sovereign funds. You know, you have the people that have been involved in Greece and Ukraine and Argentina and Ecuador and uh, you know, all over the world. And they look at Puerto Rico, not with the municipal bond fund eyes. They look at it and say, well, actually, the overall debt to GDP, the core government debt to GDP is pretty low. So we think we can play the role that the IMF normally plays in a situation like this, lend you money to tide you over the period where you have to do those painful adjustments you do those painful adjustments we'll lend you money and that's what the hedge funds were doing but they just frankly didn't realize you know politics enters into this and there's a limit to how much the Puerto Rican government probably can get away with tightening the belt before frankly the exodus just accelerates right and that would lead to a kind of self-sustaining downward spiral that they've been in for some time exactly okay Sorry, just when you say the core government debt, you mean in, in as opposed to say the utility bonds and like the development bank and those things. Yeah, and it's hugely messy. Hang because, on, guys, explain explain these terms first because our listeners aren't necessarily muni debt experts. Yeah, so let's let's go. So right at the top of the the credit scale here, right at the top, the safest stuff is general obligation debt, and that is guaranteed by the constitution. The constitution of Puerto Rico actually says you have to pay that before you pay policemen salaries, pensions, public service anything yeah. you know that ranks first then you have other stuff that isn't per se government obligation but it's guaranteed 
by the government fully and unequivocally. That also includes some utility debt, some and other sort of bits and bobs here and there. And then you have also a second part, which is these appropriation bonds, which might not be general obligation, but have hived off income streams from things like sales tax, which is the biggest one. They're called confinas in Puerto Rico. That's, also, that's another $15 billion, I think. And then you have all the other stuff that is moral obligation where we they kind of promise the fine print says well we'll promise to pay this if we can but if we don't then you're up the creek and the utilities there's an investment bank there's a highway authority and all of these you know entities have also been borrowing incredibly heavily what Uh, kinds of bonds were just defaulted on this week so those were moral obligation bonds issued by the public finance corporation which is sort of a public investment fund thingy uh, so it's kind of government debt is issued under Puerto Rico, but there are moral obligations legally. You know, people, it's, we've gone into this huge debate. Is it a Puerto Rican default? Is it, isn't it? Well, legally, it doesn't trigger cross-defaults. Typically, if you trigger, if, let's say, Puerto Rico triggers a default on one general obligation bond, then it, because of cross-default provisions, it's basically on default on all its general obligation bonds. These moral obligation bonds do not trigger that, which is why Puerto Rico probably thought, hell, we can't pay that. Let's not pay that. Okay. And they can walk so away we haven't it. gotten to the point yet, although we might be approaching it soon, where Puerto Rico has defaulted on its general obligation bonds. And that's when the problem would start, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the problems are arguably starting about that's when it's going to get really serious. And frankly, you know, we're approaching that. Just the fact that they couldn't pay these PFC moral obligation bonds kind of in- indicates that they are running on fumes. I mean, they really don't have money. They've got this working group set up to try and find out what they're going to restructure and how and how they're going to restructure how the economy. How to raise more money, maybe how to, how to renegotiate money. directly with... They're going to report, file their report at the end of the month, which is what the plan is. And the idea was that Puerto Rico would be able to not default until they have that plan. But frankly, this implies that, you know, the coffers sure. are dry. I, I want to explain something about bankruptcy law right now, because this has come up uh, within the last couple of months. There is no American state that has access to bankruptcy laws when it's thinking about defaulting on its municipal debt. And that includes Puerto Rico. Yeah. Right? But sub-state entities like utilities do qualify, but not in Puerto Rico because of a, a difference, a quirk, I guess, in the law. Puerto Rican debt and also the sub-state entities of Puerto Rico, including the PFC, do not have access to bankruptcy laws. Now, the reason this matters is that if they could go to bankruptcy court, to settle all this, there is the possibility that there would be some kind of an orderly procedure whereby Puerto Rico's creditors would be paid back some of the money and there would be a process in place to try to get Puerto Rico back to a place where it could have a sustainable debt load, where its economy could grow and it could pay off its debt over time. It doesn't have access to it. And the problem is that all of these defaults suggest that eventually we're going to end up with a whole series of lawsuits during which all the creditors are going to try to compete for the payout, right? In other words, they're going to try to suggest that they're owed all of the money on this debt. And Puerto Rico is going to argue, in contrast, that it, I can't, it can't do that without completely sacrificing its payments to public services, et cetera, et cetera. And the economy would get worse, and the debt load would essentially never get paid off. That's where we are right now. Yeah. So I guess the question is, it doesn't have access to bankruptcy law, even though some politicians in Congress have considered giving it to them. That still seems unlikely. What happens next? <laughs> the mother of all restructurings. <laughs> and there's, there'll be a bigger restructuring. The Greek debt restructuring was bigger 
The Argentina one has been dragging on for for years now, but this really could potentially be one of the biggest, messiest, just most convoluted debt restructurings that the world's ever seen. I mean, it's just because of all these bonds, because of the tangled legal, like the constitutional guarantee on geo debt. What does that actually mean? You can change the constitution. You can do all things. You'll have bondholders suing bondholders. You'll have fights. There'll be different courts of law. There'll be political battles. You'll have, you know, bondholders, U.S. retirees lobbying against Puerto Rico or lobbying for Puerto Rico. Uh, It's just going to be a complete mess. So I guess from the Puerto Rican government standpoint, all it can really do is wait for the results of this working group to come out and then try to negotiate directly with its creditors and hope that they can bargain them down to a place where the remaining debt load after that is sustainable. And yet that possibility seems incredibly remote, doesn't it? Incredibly. The problem is, you know, creditors aren't charities and, uh, you know, they have fiduciary duty to their investors as well. And generally, you know, whether you're a municipal bond fund, frankly, you're lost to see any sort of losses because you're fighting for retirees and American savers. And frankly, these hedge funds aren't, you know, you don't rise to the top of the hedge fund world by being sort of a limp-wristed pushover. But some so, of these hedge funds get into it precisely for... Yeah, these guys are veterans. These guys are people who aren't afraid of suing the crap out of people for years and years in the courts, or at least threatening to do so. And they'll sue each other. And that's already started with some inklings of that, that these various groups have all hired their famously litigious law firms on each side. Well, everybody's kind of drawing up the battle lines. And it's just going to be a mess. So the, the big prayer is that the Congress does pass some sort of law that allows... Puerto Rico to have a judge-supervised bankruptcy process, which frankly isn't going to be nice and easy. It's not going to be wrapped up in a bow in a few years. Even Detroit, which was far simpler, took a few years. But it'll be infinitely better than the alternative, which is frankly potentially you know, a decade, decades even, of lawsuits. Robin Wigglesworth, U.S. markets editor of the Financial Times. Thanks. That's been a downer. Thanks. <laughs> And finally on the show, the Canadian economy and the upcoming elections campaign season just kicked off. Joining us here today in the studio, along with Matt Klein, is Anna Nicolau. Anna. Yes. You're part of our like Canadian mafia here at the yeah, Financial Times. Yeah, we're growing. Times. There's like four of us now. Where are you from? I'm actually from New York, but I lived in Montreal and Toronto for nine years okay. before I moved here. Which is somewhere up in that in that yeah, Arctic tundra we, we refer yeah, to. Yeah, it's just as. like a blob. Okay. So. Okay. Excellent. There's actually a lot of excitement coming out of Canada right now. Yes. Okay. What happened this week? Okay. So Stephen Harper, who's been the conservative leader of Canada since 2006, so for a long time, he made a law basically saying that we're going to have this fixed date for the next election. So it's October 19th, which Canada hasn't had before. Usually elections will happen, you know when the prime minister decides to call an election or if they lose confidence in the House of Commons, something like that. But with this, it was the first time when people could actually anticipate a date for the election. So that was different, first of all. And then the prime minister will call an official start to the campaign period. At least in the past 10 years, it's always been right around the minimum, which is 36 days. So they have pretty short campaign periods. But this time he called it almost... Two months. Yeah, two months in advance. And a lot of people are saying that that was a tactic to outspend the other parties because his party has more money 
and there's spending caps based on how many days the campaign is. So it would have been 25 million per party. Now it's just over 50 million. So raise the spending limit, presumably yes. because the conservatives have more money than the other parties. Yeah. The other two parties, this is interesting because one of the parties isn't usually a contender mm-hmm. and this year they seem to be. So first of all, which are the other two parties for our yes. listeners who aren't familiar with the Canadian parliamentary system, of including course. me? Okay, who are the other two parties and who are their leaders? So you have the Liberal Party, which has basically been the party that's ruled Canada for most of the past century. And they, their current leader is Justin Trudeau. The Trudeaus are kind of like the Kennedys of Canada. They're pretty well-liked. They're kind of good-looking. Pierre Trudeau is his father, and he was a very popular prime minister. So they put Justin up, and people were excited initially because he was a Trudeau. But his popularity has kind of waned in the past year or so. And then you have the NDP, which is... The New Democrats? The, yeah, New Democratic Party. So it's a social democratic party. It's further left than the liberals. They've really never been very popular at this kind of level. They've always been a second-tier party. Like a fringy kind of Yeah, like party. a wacky leftist party. And just in the past you know, four years, they've kind of gained momentum. People call it the orange wave because the orange is their color. And this really kind of legitimized itself just a few months ago with the Alberta elections, because Alberta's been hit so hard by the oil crash. And for the first time in 44 years, they switched their government from conservative to NDP, which is completely unheard of. So um, they went from the conservative government to the far left Yeah, it's party. like Bernie Sanders winning in Texas. Like, it just it was just absurd. Okay. Um, and I think that's kind of made people feel, well, maybe the NDP really could be a party that could rule all of Canada, which they've never done before. Right now in the polls, where is everybody yeah. at? It's pretty much completely split three ways, which is why everything's totally up in the air. I think the NDP has a very slight lead, but it's really like 30%, 30%, 28% or something. It's pretty much anyone's race, and I think that's kind of why this is also kind of crazy because it's usually always been a two-party thing, liberals versus conservatives. So, Is it reflective of a shift within Canada to to a more liberal, a more left-wing party in reaction to an economy that's starting to struggle now? I think the issue is that the left of Canada has always been there, but they've mostly gone for the liberals historically. For practical reasons. For practical reasons, yeah. Liberals are more centrist than than the NDP. And the issue right now is that the left side is split between NDP and liberal party, and the risk is that if everyone just splits their votes, Stephen Harper will win even though he only has... One third of the population yeah. behind him, that kind of yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah, I think it's it's an element of people being kind of fed up and wanting change. And Stephen Harper's been in power for a very long time. If he wins again, it'll be the first time someone wins four times in a row, I think, in a century. How long has he been prime minister? Since 2006. Okay, let's talk about the Canadian economy. Yes. Right? We're getting pretty close to the point where it is officially in a recession. Mm-hmm. It might already be in a recession, but we don't know yet because these things operate on a lag. In other words, if you're in a recession, you don't know it for another three months because the official body that says so hasn't declared it yet. Yes, we may or may not be in a recession. Okay, but we think we might at least have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. What happened? Because the narrative throughout the last few years has been that Canada was the one place that essentially sailed through the financial crisis and the subsequent downturns in other places. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of Stephen Harper's big talking point is he says, well, we did so well after the financial crisis. But a lot of that was based on, you know, Canada has a very regulated banking system. So they weren't hit 
nearly as hard as the U.S. was by the whole blow up in the banks. So yeah, they fared quite well in 2009, 2010. And the whole thing has just kind of flipped itself over now because Stephen Harper's agenda was so pro-big oil. And oil has obviously crashed completely and the economy is really struggling now. Harper and the Bank of Canada also have continually said that this is just a temporary thing. They expect, you know, oil to impact things for the first quarter only, but they've been wrong about that already. It hasn't been contained to the first quarter. For now, it seems to be mostly oil. Okay, so Matt, uh, despite your being from Chicago, you have this weird, quirky interest in our northern neighbors. Uh, I do. What do you think is happening with the Canadian economy? Yeah, I I think Anna is right that oil is a big factor. Uh, If you look at the share of business investment that goes towards oil, in Canada. It's something, on nationally, it's like 30%, which is a pretty large number. A lot of that capex is being cut because the appeal, even though the existing tar sand oil projects that have been started are probably going to be completed, there isn't a lot of incentive and will continue to pump for many, many years. There isn't a lot of incentive for making any new investments because it's very expensive and because the break-even price is something around the order of $60 for uh, West Texas Intermediate. It's right now, the break-even price is the price at which new investment makes sense uh, in drilling for oil is justified. I mean, part of the issue is that if we're going to get a little bit in the technicality, a lot of the Canadian oil and the tar sands, it has very high upfront costs, but then once you do it, it'll basically just keep pumping out for like, you know, 30 decades, years. Right? right. And the cost of operating it once it's finished is very low. So for products that are sort of halfway done, there's a lot of incentive to keep going, even if oil price is low. And products that are finished, obviously, they're going to keep pumping for a long time, which is going to actually suppress the price. But for new projects, you have to have a pretty high price, at least in the short term, to, to justify it. And that's higher than what it is now. So there's been a pretty severe cutback. Okay. And since oil investment is such a big part of total business investment, I mean, in Alberta, which is sort of an extreme case, Alberta, I think it's something on the order of like 60% of all business capex is oil. So if that mostly falls, you can expect there to be a significant shrinkage in the economy. I mean, that explains, I think, in part why there was an interest in a change in government. How it, it flows through to housing also, which is another big source of you know, what's going on in the Canadian Okay, economy. so housing being the second point, because this is one of the things that we actually do hear quite often, which is that parts of Canada are in a housing bubble. Normally, I, I hear of this coming in the context of what's happening in Vancouver, where there's a lot of immigration, where housing prices are just completely insane. Uh, how big a deal is it right now, do you think, Anna? I think it's something that people have been complaining about for quite a long time. I, I can remember five years ago, also, everyone was talking about the housing bubble. Um, in Vancouver and also in Toronto, people also... You know, just often say, well, they're letting all these Chinese investors come in and, you know, inflate the prices of houses and then middle class people can't afford to do buy anything home. else. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And it, it doesn't seem to be slowing down, which I think has kind of also been a conundrum for the Bank of Canada when you have an economy that's lagging. It's but not the, doing well, yeah. but if you keep policy loose, you might yeah, exactly. inflate the housing bubble. Yeah, so that's that's been an issue for them for quite a while. And I think especially now when you have five months of negative GDP, but there's still a housing bubble in a lot of these, in, in, the, in the biggest cities of Canada. Matt, you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's arguably part of the reason we were talking about why Canada sailed through the recession, obviously they didn't have the downturn that we did in housing. Not only did they not have a downturn, but they also had house prices go up a lot, uh, especially when Carney was there before he left to move to England. Mark Carney. Mark Carney, the, governor, the, right, right. the former governor of the Bank of Canada. That was arguably part of the policy was let's you know, sustain, because a lot of Canadian industry is exposed to U.S. demand. When the U.S. economy fell, you need to offset that somehow. So oil was helpful. The other thing that was helpful was you have this domestic housing boom with construction and people taking a lot of mortgages and and buying things. And there's presumably some limit. It's sort of surprising that 
Canadian household debt it used to track reasonably well with U.S. household debt. You know, we're in many ways relatively similar people. It's one of the reasons I, I like looking at Canada. But there's a huge divergence starting around 2007 where Canadian household debt just keeps going way up. You know, household debt has been going down for a lot of reasons. But, you know, how sustainable that is, especially if, you know, the Chinese investor phenomenon is real. Arguably, some of that is, you know, immigration. Some of that's also Chinese people thinking, hmm, you know, situation in China is not great. It'd be nice if I could go somewhere where I could, if I buy a house, I get, you know, certain residency benefits, there's rule of law, I can leave if there's a corruption crackdown. That may, that flow could either continue a lot or it could cut back rapidly if the government decides to be tougher on enforcement. Okay, the loony, right, the Canadian dollar has weakened considerably against the U.S. dollar in the last few years. Anna, your friends are all super obsessed with this, right? (laughs) I feel like generally... There's a concern about the economy, but it doesn't seem as much as you might think, given the numbers that are out there. But there's always seemed to be this obsession with the Canadian dollar and its status versus the U.S. dollar. I think a lot of it is purely because, I mean, Canadians go shopping in the U.S. They're shopping on Amazon.com. There's this very long... very expensive. Yeah, and I mean, just, I mean, just their status as, you know, the little brother to the U.S., has kind of ticked people off for a very long time. So I think there's this... I would think companies would be happy about this. They can export more to the U.S. It makes their products cheaper. Well, that's the irony is that, I mean, at least in theory, the, the weak Canadian dollar is supposed to be what's bringing them out of this if we're in a recession. It's supposed to help. But people are still just freaking out about the Canadian dollar, where it's gonna, if it's going to keep going lower. I I have friends at the Globe and Mail in Toronto, and they say... Whenever they put a story about the loonies, it's just automatically the most read story on the website, no matter what's happening. It's like more than Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> That's so, really big. Then. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing I hear the most from Canadians is about the loony right now. Okay. Anna Nicolau, reporter for the FT and leader of the FT's Canadian Mafia here in its New York offices. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Cardiff. Emilia Mahasuk is away, so we're not going to have a follow-up segment Thanks to my colleague on Alphaville, Matt Klein, for being with us throughout the hour. That's all the time we have left for today. But as always, we'd love to get your feedback. You can call us at 917-551-5012 and let us know if you'd be okay with playing your call just like in today's Q&A segment. You can also email us at alphachat at ft.com or tweet at me directly at at Cardiff Garcia. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Amy Keene produces and edits this podcast. She also picks the music. This is her podcast, and the rest of us are just talking in it. Thanks, Amy.